Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining today's Analytica Laser webcast, Outcomes-Based Agreements, Deal or No Deal. Today's webcast is on how performance predictions and decision analytics can help you scale innovative contracting opportunities in 2018. My name is Lee Stern, and I'm a senior global consultant in the Value and Access Division here at Analytica, and I'm glad to be acting as your host, Cast. In terms of introductions, on the webcast with me today are my two colleagues from our New York team. We have Roman Casciano, the General Manager of Analytica Laser. Roman has been advising companies in HEOR and market access strategies for Analytica since 1995. We also have Ulrich Newman, the Senior Director of Commercial Strategy, who has over a decade of experience in product commercial development and policy. Ulrich works here at Analytica as the lead business consultant for our outcomes-based contracting team. Let me re briefly walk you through our agenda that we will be covering today. Ulrich will start us off with some of the conceptual considerations around innovative contracting and outcomes-based agreements, especially as it relates to how we leverage real-world evidence and how we deal with the problem of uncertainty that is at the heart of these agreements. Then, we'll briefly revisit some of the key factors summarizing our lessons learned in the implementation on the pharma as well as from the payer side. For us, these experiences have led to the development of a fairly solid framework that helps our clients understand how these agreements actually materialize in the real world. More than just showing the frameworks, we'll also take uh, strategic considerations that bring them to life through a series of very practical examples. Roman will then explore specific cases to address the points we've been asked to answer for this session. We will have the Q&A session where we will answer your questions. And at the end, Ulrich will conclude our session with a few specific steps we have distilled from our experience in OBAs. So the core question for today is, should I do a deal or not do a deal? That is at the heart of this webcast. As we move from carefully negotiated pilots to considering OBAs as a viable contracting tool in the reimbursement portfolio, we'll also talk about OBAs at scale. How do we predict, measure, and evaluate the performances of these agreements? How do we know what success will look like as we move to scale the approach across different products, disease categories, countries, or populations? And in short, how do we set up for success? Before I hand it over, I briefly want to give a bit, a bit of background about Analytica, especially for those of you who maybe haven't worked with us yet. We are a market access strategy and HEOR consultancy servicing the industry for over 20 years across all major markets. I'd say that we're probably recognized as an authority in value translation that's bringing clinical trial efficacy to real-world effectiveness. Those of you who work with us may know that our approach to market access is a truly integrated one. We combine our cutting-edge decision analytics for evidence generation with trusted senior-level strategy. And a side note, many of our consultants on our team are actually former payers. Therefore, we bring the end-user perspective to all of our projects. The range of our services here offer you a glimpse into the specialized experience that we're combining in our teams. Our service lines combine the overarching market access strategy with individual evidence generation tactics that are required to, to tell the full value story of a product. This includes everything from systematic literature reviews to advanced modeling and simulation to burden of illness studies, all integrated to enhance the value of your product. We're actually also excited to note and to share with you today that Analytica is now part of the Sertara family. Sertara is a global leader in model-informed drug development and regulatory science. You can see from the combination of our services here that we're now in a unique position to provide end-to-end -end strategy and cutting-edge technology all the way from the R&D intelligence and regulatory submission stages, evidence development throughout um, product development, all the way to actual market access strategy and patient point of care. We are now the go-to partner to answer industry demand for value assessment from the bench to the marketplace. As you can see from this slide, our global footprint brings together over 700 professionals across 30 offices around the world. 
This means we have local expertise in niche areas and in every market. The Analytica team has eight physical offices across key markets. So now I'll end that here and hand it over to Ulrich to start our discussion today. Thank you, Lee. And uh, as you said at the outset here, um, let's look a little bit at how the landscape around value-based contracting is uh, changing and what that means for how we have to position ourselves for these new types of contracts. So it's remarked, uh, been remarked uh, before, um, it's a bit that we're facing uh, the best of times and the worst of times. We witnessed an incredible acceleration of innovation. Our understanding of uh, human biology has never been better, really. Uh, new therapies uh, bring significant uh, reductions in mortality, all that at a pace that's you know, unforeseen and never been there before with hundreds of millions now benefiting from recent treatments and cancer immunization, hep C, HIV. Um, and we have, you know, a lot of innovative, uh, innovative uh, products still in the pipeline. But let's be frank, we also have higher development costs than ever, greater therapeutic complexity, complexity increased manufacturing costs, and potentially uh, an ever more narrow group of patients to treat. So the result is that the unit price for treating a single patient will be higher. And already at one-sixth of our uh, GDP here in the U.S., the combined activities uh, do raise affordability challenges at the micro and at the macro level. So as a policy response, um, you've probably seen uh, the legislation that has been adopted over the past few years uh, to force what's called the transformation from paying for volume to paying for value. Um, it's already um, really encompassed the delivery side. And what you see here is an overview of alternative payment models sorted by the level of disruption to the current status quo. And there's others. Uh, as you know, Medicare is set to, to make uh, about, I think, half of its payments on performance-based uh, agreements uh, by this year. United, the biggest U.S. insurer, says about one, one in three of its members already receive care from providers in value-based arrangements. So a lot of that is happening, and many stakeholders have now asked for the biopharma industry uh, to commit to value-based purchasing as well. And uh, many have said that outcomes-based uh, agreements that we're going to talk about today are, in a way, the next chapter for paying for value, um, as in that the reimbursement of the pharmaceutical product is directly tied to actual measurable real-world value that it provides. Now, if you've been in this field for a while, you'll say, well, wait a minute, we've always done this. At the core of each value dossier is an attempt to demonstrate how a new product's attributes answer an unmet need that's faced in clinical practice. Um, we've always tried to show value, and that's absolutely right. Our team here at Analytica has developed, well, I'd say, hundreds of value propositions in HUR and market access. And, um, you know, we look at what the problem is that the market is facing, the clinical environment is facing. Um, it could be high-risk uh, disease progression, high mortality rates in the population, and we try to make a connection with the product attribute or the so-called solution to that problem. And we've been doing that, you know, uh, a pretty good job is demonstrating that, in fact, over the years. Um, well, to do that, you know, you always typically had uh, a solid clinical trial, right? That's always been the prerequisite. And you also need to have some good rationales of where the product fits into the marketplace, budget impact analyses, et cetera. Uh, but some other things have uh, maybe, you know, been in the category of nice to have. Database studies, cost-consequence analyses, cost-effectiveness modeling. Um, and, um, well, then we realized there is a problem. And uh, over the last few years, it's the idea of this efficacy to effectiveness gap that has really come front and center. Um, and I think for me, that's the essence of what we're talking about value-based contracting. It's because we realize that there are so many, well, I want to say unfulfilled promises, but there is a real challenge that we face. And, and that's the question is, are we actually getting the same thing that we studied in the trial? So, uh, you know, when we think about the new paradigm, it's not that we suddenly have to prove value, which we, you know, would have been interested in previously. It's that those links are more and more in question. And all of the nice-to-haves have now moved into the must-have category, and we all, you know, uh, go forward and, and probably will have a challenge with theoretical value propositions um, that bridge the, uh, the gap between efficacy and effectiveness. What's really happening is that we have a drastically changing bar for the certainty of the value proposition and the value translation from efficacy to effectiveness. So that presents a challenge as well as an opportunity. Here on that slide and on that list, you see a couple of the uncertainties you might face. I'm sure you know, some of them sound really familiar to you. So 
how do we deal with uncertainties? Well, uh, I'm going to put to you that OBAs are actually an excellent reimbursement tool if you don't want to curtail patient access, but have to acknowledge that there is a question about some real-world effectiveness when it comes to the formula decision-making. And if you look at it from a payer side, economically speaking, when it came to the risk at the point of purchase, the health plan would have accepted that risk of this uncertainty and say, you know, the uncertainty would have been priced into the contract terms or certain utilization restrictions and management um, or the rebate level. But um, we know that with certain, you know, rebate levels, that's unsustainable. And frankly, it doesn't help the patient getting, you know, access either. So in the end, economically speaking, this is about an agreement where the new product will deliver sufficient additional net benefit to cover its excess cost. Uh, now, you know, if that health gain is in question, it means that presenting classical evidence may simply not be enough unless you're willing to answer the payer's call and say you enter an agreement where the risk is shared. So um, really, that's at the heart of it. On your part, you need to first model the efficacy to effectiveness gap and how that affects your product in the payer's population specifically and what the implications are from a gross to net perspective when compared to other reimbursement tools. And really, that's at the core of what we're going to discuss today. So as I said, the situation may present a challenge, but, you know, OBA should also be seen as an opportunity. And uh, what we did here, you'll, you know, we listed a couple of the benefits that our clients associate with them. First of all, the main goal is to achieve better patient access and avoid formulary positioning that is unfavorable. Not surprising when we look at the data, it shows that in about half of these uh, agreements, some or all of the utilization management restrictions um, were eased. And um, as I will argue today, OBA are the perfect vehicle to show that product attributes um, that are not well me- measured in, in the RCT can, you know, and, and translate those findings into value that matters to pairs. And I should also emphasize that the agreements are not necessarily loss leaders. Um, there are gross net implications, and we're going to go specifically into that uh, and, and, and with some very specific numbers today. Um, but uh, lastly, one thing that we observed as clients you know, have engaged, there is really a very deep learning from these agreements. And, and I, I remember uh, one of our clients uh, just recently said uh, when we worked on an agreement that it is almost like uh, this is uh, the most in-depth payer engagement strategy they've ever had because they're really sitting at the table discussing some of these challenges that the payers face and obviously get, get tremendous insights that, uh, that inform a lot of other decisions beyond the particular um, agreement. So I'm sure you've come across a number of the taxonomies that uh, classify these risk-sharing agreements, uh, and we won't get into that today. Um, you know, there's the widely cited ISPOR framework. It separates between financially-based agreements, uh, which, you know, manage to manage the budget impact, and there's the performance-based agreements to prove value, you know, and it further distinguishes between those. Um, what we find is that academic frameworks tend to be a, a little removed from, from practical use here. Um, so what we see here is just a simplified continuum of innovative of contracting options in the U.S. marketplace. Um, and, you know, most of these all outcomes-based agreements uh, we find are a tactical combination of a financial reward with a pay-for-performance measure um, on the outcome, uh, say, clinical uh, measure, uh, biomarker, surrogate, uh, utilization endpoints. Um, so you can have uh, guarantees, for instance, that supplement a traditional rebate approach. Um, you can have financial risk guarantees for patients who, you know, might become hospitalized, who incur a negative outcome. Um, and, you know, that might mean you'd have to pay for the impacted members' uh, pharmacy costs related to your product or the condition or the hospital uh, cost as a whole. Or you could have a total cost of care guarantee with the payer for all of the product's patients, um, you know, with potential adjustments and risk characteristics. So, so these types of agreements, you know, they, they could result in, in sort of a guarantee to bend the total cost of care um, or work on a per-episode basis. And, you know, you'd apply outcomes data uh, to, to administer and adjudicate the risk share. Um, what is also interesting is if you look at future models here, um, such as indication-specific pricing, a lot of them actually have at the core um, the idea of an outcomes guarantee um, and potential to be a lot more effective uh, when it comes to, uh, comes to the question of do they deliver value when an outcomes guarantee is um, involved. So 
just to uh, go through a little uh, of the numbers here, um, you know, how are how many of these agreements are out there? First of all, um, U.S. agreements are not in the public domain. That should be said up front. Um, so what we're looking here is international numbers as we compiled them as of, as of recently. Um, and you say, say, see that, you know, most of these outcomes-based agreements, they fall into one of three categories. Uh, first category is uh, the classic outcomes-based guarantee. Um, really, reimbursement is tied to a clinical outcome measure, as we know we just discussed in the real world, and the manufacturer sort of pays back to the payer if an outcome isn't reached in the population or in target patients, um, pretty much you know, what we're going to discuss today. Uh, then internationally, though, there are two other categories that are interesting um, and um, have uh, internationally some experience with these types of agreements. There's about 100 agreements that are uh, called conditional treatment continuation or fall into that, that classification. Um, here, coverage is uh, sort of conditional upon a, a short-term treatment response. Um, a benefit or continued benefits could be a tumor response. Uh, manufacturers here commit to discontinue a switch patients that do not reach the outcome. And in multiple schemes, uh, you know, they have provided uh, funding uh, during the uh, first period of treatment in initiation, um, such as an example is Alzheimer's in Italy, where you had products that were covered for free uh, months or so by the manufacturer. And then once the reimbursement goals are met, the reimbursable is going to be taken over by the national system. Um, and the last category um, that you see internationally is, is uh, the coverage with evidence development, um, where um, really coverage is based on a population-level collection of evidence in, in the real world. And then, um, you know, products uh, get discontinued if the outcome isn't demonstrated could also technically be expanded in terms of coverage. And there are probably 150 of these agreements globally that fall into the coverage with evidence uh, development category. Uh, in the U.S., the majority is focused on devices and diagnostics with, uh, with CMS. So what's the distribution? Um, uh, well, let's look first here. What's the question of uh, uh, success when uh, it is rated by industry executives? Um, here is some recent uh, data on uh, on uh, um, the U.S. And the question was uh, posed by w PwC Research here. Um, are you involved in OBAs? Um, about 62% said we're not even involved at all, our organization in OBAs. And then about 24% uh, said, yes, we are. And of those who are involved, um, we see that there's probably one-third of them involved uh, in OBAs quite heavily. And, um, you know, the, the bottom half is involved in, in, in some pilots, um, but is really just exploring it. Now, if you ask those who have been involved in the U.S. in terms of, uh, you know, uh, starting OBAs, piloting OBAs, um, most of them, whatever your measure of success is, but most of them generally say they're very successful um, in terms of having achieved what they wanted to achieve with that contract. And um, most likely, most of them, and this is uh, from the manufacturer perspective, said they'd like to continue them um, for the next year. So who... Uh, where is the distribution among manufacturers? Uh, on the bottom here, you see, uh, um, based on real data, our attempt to just you know, show who's leading in this field. And, and uh, you see that there's a few companies who are really pioneering outcomes-based agreements and have uh, quite a number of them in the market. And you see above that in, into what area they fall. Now, this is global data. Um, oncology is, is, is very highly ranked, and that is because of countries like Italy uh, with you know, disease-specific registries where um, this, is, uh, this is sort of prevalent um, in the U.S. context, oncology would not rank um, that high. And generally, you know, asking about, well, what is the adoption level? Um, and if you sort of just uh, match the, the, sort of the, the level of experience of selected systems with types of innovative contract and cost, contrast that with the willingness to adopt them, um, and you know the size of the circles here represent the uh, volume of the respective market. Um, you could you know chart it in a way um, like we did here. Um, again, you could have slightly different perspectives. There's this, this is obviously a, a, a just an attempt to visualize uh, where certain countries may sit in terms of their willingness and their experience. But what's really remarkable for me here is mostly the the size of the bubble. And uh, the uh, if you look at the U.S. market, obviously it is huge and. Frankly, the question is, what is the U.S. market doing? And the answer to that is, is, is pretty fair uh, and, and, and clear. There is a massive upward uh, trajectory here for the U.S. market when it comes to OBAs. And let's not forget they've been around in the U.S. since probably 19... Uh, 
late 1990s, uh, Merck had an agreement uh, that you know would uh, compensate uh, prescription cost for uh, simvastatin if it failed to lower LDL. And there have been probably 70 or so uh, uh, publicly known agreements that we know of. And uh, our estimates are that are probably double the number of confidential uh, and injuries uh, deg- uh, deals if, if they were included. Um, and but what we can observe here is that in the last two or two or so years we have uh, an amazing increase of agreements, and that's what you're looking at here. Um, and we um, probably estimate that up to 40 um, agreements uh, are enter uh, are entering the market globally every year, and probably a dozen. Uh, if not a little more, um, are entering only this year in the U.S. So um, this is obviously just a selection of those uh, well-publicized U.S. deals. But uh, again, you look at the trajectory, you have about seven private sector deals prior from, from the whole time, from 1990 to 2013, and about 20 agreements uh, only since 2015. Um, so it is very clear that this is uh, increasing in, in interest among payers and, and the industry. Now, um, there are uh, some concerns, and um, I think, you know, discussion of outcomes-based agreements would be complete um, if, uh, if wouldn't be complete if we didn't talk about some of the challenges or structural hurdles that are curbing that expansion. Again, that expansion occurs against these, these, these challenges. Um, and, you know, we obviously work with clients uh, in detail on those, and it's not the focus here to talk that much about the, the legal requirements and the regulations, um, but it's fair to say they dampen the appetite uh, for AB, uh, OBA. And let's quickly look at them. Um, Mainly, they fall into three categories. Um, One is government price reporting. That's uh, essentially the reporting requirements in the U.S. with CMS um, to calculate uh, Part B average sales price, ASP, and to calculate Medicaid best prices, uh, which are effectively the lowest price that are offered to uh, a non-accept purchaser. And that's well documented to be a challenge for for setting the performance thresholds of OBA's best price. Um, However, if we look at the most recent rule that's out there from CMS, uh, they committed to to offer further guidance. They recognize the value of OBAs as unique. And and more recently, obviously, the administration has made very clear statements uh, that new rules are necessary and that they want to pilot um, agreements uh, that that work in uh, in, in the legal context. Um, also, the second bucket is, is called AKS, anti-kickback uh, statue or statues, which uh, prohibit the exchange of value um, um, or to induce a reward sh- service by uh, the, the federal government. So that includes uh, business with Medicare and Medicaid programs. Um, again, here, if you look at it, the limitations of the current safe harbor provisions have been acknowledged through uh, uh, you know, the OIG's latest uh, solicitation. Um, solicitation and uh, a white call has been uh, made for expansion uh, very clearly where to expand them and um uh, lastly, an important question remains to, you know, what is the communication outside the four corners of the label, if you will? Uh, what is acceptable when it comes to negotiating these agreements with payers? Uh, and again, you know, what I think we should note here is that there is movement. Uh, 21st Century Cures has obviously greatly expanded the pre-approval communication uh, uh, opportunities, um, also regarding off-label use. And the latest FDA draft guidance uh, from last year has redefined the agency position really on this. Um, and, you know, again, several Several statements have been made by FDA leadership that made very clear that there's no intention to regulate, uh, you know, the terms of these manufacturer payer contracts. And obviously, the FDA doesn't uh, regulate the practice of medicine either. So what's our conclusion here? Well, the conclusion is that there's valid legal concerns on all sides. And the lack of safe harbor legislation, for example, uh, may complicate, but it doesn't necessarily prohibit the development of an innovative agreement in the current U.S. environment. Uh, just the uh, the curve that we showed prior to that shows that. Similarly, the uh, limitations on the uh, communication of certain endpoints may reduce the uptake, uh, but the emergence of ever more agreements shows that um, companies uh, have found ways to adapt. And, and if you're smart about it, you can find ways to adapt. Um, you know, and essentially, the deal structures in the market need to feature that added complexity to avoid, say, best price implications. Um, and um, obviously, if we could have more legal clarity, and there's some indications, as I just said, that there is more coming on that front or in the works, um, we would probably agree that uh, you know, there was, the adoption curve would be really unleashed.
So we did a, quish, uh, a big of a, a, sh- a short survey on our uh, last meeting at ISPO where we were asked to, to run an educational symposium. And, um, you know, we've asked what are the, besides legal challenges, what are some of the, some of the you know, um, uh, questions you face, uh, practically speaking, and we'll address some of that later. Um, and, you know, what it shows here is a pretty even distribution among uh, the categories that, you know, of, of challenges that people face who are, who are charged with implementing these deals. Um, and I start with how do I negotiate? How do I predict the outcome? How do I monitor them? How do I identify, you know, what outcome uh, to even select when I design the deal? So what I'll suggest here today is that um, not all of these challenges when you phase an outcomes-based agreement and the implementation are created equal. And uh, let me show you what I mean with that. So this is a list of, of the challenges you could face, and, and I think you, you'll, you've come across the list of, of challenges with OBAs at this point. Um, and this is what you know, we put together based uh, on uh, our work with clients. I'm sure you've seen something like that. And skeptics would point out and say, well, this is all the reasons why OBA will never take off. Well, optimists would then, you know, counter that, well, we have a proliferation of health data. Um, you know, we have a continued rise of OBAs. If you just look at it practically, um, if you look at some of the opportunities of that new data, new technologies, blockchain, smart contracts, uh, you know, that could be totally the future of, of, of contracting and, and, and should be. And obviously, there's political pressure on all of that. And, and so what we think is, pragmatically speaking, these are real problems, right? But what is overlooked is that the number of them are second order challenges, as I would call them. So what does that mean? It means kind of that we're worried about them on too many occasions before we even know that we should be worried about them. And um, what I mean is that, you know, with second order challenge is that our willingness to dedicate resources should depend on the question of whether we can actually deliver on the performance question. Um, You know, if it really comes to the first two of them that are really essential to answer at at the very first place, and those are the ones, uh, you know, that, that, that pose the question of what is our risk and how do we manage the uncertainty in this fuzzy real world? And even if you don't go for the implementation of performance contract, you still need to understand that risk. You model that risk for your case at hand uh, and quantify it from a gross to net perspective. And that's exactly what we're going to do um, right after this. So this is my parting slide. And uh, you know, following that classic wisdom of the polymath da Vinci, you could say that naively jumping into the messy operational considerations around OBA uh, just simply carries a sunk cost risk uh, and significant downside risk, no matter if you and how well you negotiate them and execute them later on, you need to understand the impact of the OBA that it has based on a sound model to navigate you know, what are known to be stormy waters. So he says, he who loves practice about theory is like the sailor who boards the ship without a rudder and a compass and never knows where he may cast. So I'm handing over to Roman now, who's going to talk about that nav- navigational system that we can use. We call it drivers of effectiveness. And he's going to show you how to build these effective parameters for OB success, OBA success, uh, clinically and, and economically speaking. Thanks very much, Ulrich. And uh, thank you, everybody, for joining today. Um, so uh, as, as Ulrich said, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig in a little bit on the, what we consider to be one of the fundamental um, questions that you need to answer when entering into a, uh, an outcomes-based agreement. In particular, um, setting up the idea of how we, best, how we best structure our performance agreements to maximize our probability of success. And at the foundation of that is, well, how is your product actually going to perform? Which sometimes I find to be a secondary question that people ask when when entering into such deals. But nonetheless, we think it's central and and that's that's the main uh, thing that I'm gonna talk about. Um, So so as many of our clients are facing practical questions as they enter into these uh, these discussions about, um, you know, delving into uh, an outcomes-based performance uh, agreement, and the the questions. Some of them do revolve around the the idea of what outcome should be measured, what, when, and how often should you measure it, who should uh, who should be the ones to to collect and and determine what, in fact, is the performance 
you know, these these are uh, the, the the range of questions that are that are often asked, and we submit that that these questions can be answered uh, with with the idea of of your real world performance uh, prediction uh, at the center of it, and you know, at the ultimately at the bottom of it is the idea of whether or not it's worth the trouble of entering into the agreement in the first place. Um, so these are the sort of internal questions that I think people are, are often facing, and, and it seems like a, a lot to manage. Um, on top of that, you, you have a little bit of external skepticism. Um, uh, Dr. Miller from Express, Express Scripts recently uh, made a comment that uh, if a new patient on a new drug goes out and has a salty pizza and ends up in the emergency room, is that the drug's fault or the patient's fault? Um, so I would submit that uh, people in clinical trials also have pizza once in a while, and this is a, a, uh, a pretty typical thing we face, especially if this, uh, this confounder that we're talking about is well-balanced between the treatment arms. But there is a good point here, and that point is that we need to know uh, what things are affecting the drug outcome, and what what factors might be confounders that we need to consider. So, when we when we enter into the the uh, the task of trying to identify uh, what we expect to see in the real world, it's important to remember one thing: the drug's efficacy does not vary from the clinical trial into the real-world setting. It's only the distribution of, of circumstances that vary. And we can leverage the information we have from the clinical program, from other real-world data sources, and from the, the, uh, the vast uh, growing uh, data, data sources that are out there to identify how, in fact, this value, this treatment outcome will translate into the real world. So to do that, we like to think about a number of categories of factors or considerations that, that we look at, um, and we call these drivers of effectiveness. So there are a, a number of things that are sort of commonplace to think about in terms of the the translation of efficacy into effectiveness, and, and it's often on the right side here uh, that people speak about the patient population factors, you know, what are their uh, age, gender, uh, different comorbidities, severity of disease, uh, these types of things that are commonly looked at, but it's also extremely important to look at some of these other factors, which are usually not present um, in the clinical trial setting, and which can make, make big differences in terms of real-world effectiveness. And that is, of course, patterns of, of drug use, um, history of, of drug use, past history of exposure, maybe co-prescriptions, adherence levels, which are commonly different from the clinical trial setting and are difficult to measure within the clinical trial setting. And you also have uh, healthcare system factors, which, which admittedly drive some of these other uh, aspects. The coverage policies, um, you know, what, what are the patient out-of-pockets? Maybe a patient uh, uh, is less likely in the real world to continue on a treatment. So in, in understanding what the real-world performance is, all of these factors come into play and need to be considered. I would also like to clarify that in addition to the categories that I just mentioned are, are in our drivers of effectiveness framework, it's important to know how these factors behave. You know, what, what are the, we, I guess we could say what type of factors these are. Um, and some factors may be things which influence the base risk, forgetting about the, the treatment that we're talking about. You know, what is the risk of, say, a, uh, a, an MI uh, in a population, and that's something like age, where an, an elderly person is at a higher risk of, of an MI than a, than a younger person. Um, so there's more opportunity, perhaps, in that population to, 
to create reductions in, in, those, in those events. Um, then there are, secondly, factors which influence the treatment effect, the, the so-called um, uh, interaction effects. Biomarkers are, are perhaps in this category where a particular type of, of, of treatment uh, is going to work better in a population that exhibits uh, a certain, uh, uh, you know, subclinical characteristic. Um, and then, unfortunately, last category, which is, is usually uh, most things that we encounter, um, and that is those that influence both the base risk and the treatment effect, which makes analysis more complicated, but which, uh, which needs to be understood as well. So another important consideration, apart from the basic uh, drivers of effectiveness and, and how each of them behaves, is, the, is, the, is what we call uh, channeling bias. Um, and it's the, it's the new treatment effect. And, and that, that is essentially the, the idea that you're, you're, you're almost never in the real world in a situation where all of the patients that start on the new treatment are randomly starting on the new treatment. There's usually some overriding factor as to why the patient uh, received that new treatment. And, you know, one classical story is patients that are non-responders or not optimal responders with available medications. So naturally, that population, that so-called resistant population, is going to be channeled towards the, the, the newer treatment just because they have not performed well and, and need something new, need something different. Um, then there is the idea of, of optimization of use, and this is what physicians are supposed to do. They're supposed to take the clinical data, look at patient types in whom they think are going to benefit the most um, with a new treatment, and and channel the treatment to those individuals. Um, that is great from the standpoint of practice of medicine, but it's difficult to then tease out the effect of the new treatment in a real world, uh, in a real world setting. And, and lastly, you, you have this severe population phenomenon and uh, it's maybe somewhat rela related to the non-responders uh, topic, but, but sometimes the patients that are at a later stage of disease or uh, are, are perceived to really need something new uh, will, will be more likely to be prescribed a medication. Um, so to look at how this, uh, this effect uh, uh, results in real-world analyses, um, I think it's, it's important, an important illustration. Um, the, you know, the, the, I'm sure this isn't the first time uh, that, that many of you have, have seen sort of a result like I'm presenting here. You know, the clinical trial is showing this very strong relative risk of, uh, of, of 0.65. So there's, uh, you know, a 35% reduction in the, in the rate of events in the, in the RCT, but then when you go and you look in the, the real-world population, you're seeing pretty similar results for both treatment groups, maybe not even statistically significant. But when you, when you try to unpack this um, and look at what might be beneath it, more often than not, it's the channeling effect which is, which is causing uh, this, this uh, circumstance. And, you know, researchers have always... Uh, look to uh, methods like propensity matching and so on, uh, multivariate analysis to try and uh, control for and, and, and tease out some of these differences. And when you're looking in, in retrospect, you can, you can often do so. But, you know, you can see over here on the right that the, the, the new treatment um, is, is being used in a higher percentage of patients with severe disease, and hence there are a higher number of patients and, and proportion of, of, uh, of events uh, among that population. And it's a very typical phenomenon, but it's, it's, it's critical in the context of outcomes-based agreements because you can see if you have a deal that's based on, let's say, a relative risk or based on a delta in, in terms of event rates, um, you, you're, you're more likely than not 
to suffer from this channeling effect if your deal structure is some kind of comparison of one group versus another. Uh, we have to keep in mind we're in the real world, and if you're going to do that sort of a of a of a uh, of a program, then there need to be caveats. There need to there need to be um, specifications of of your deal parameters which account for this, or at the very least, you need to be prepared at what what you're going to expect. Okay, so with that backdrop, um, I, I'd like to talk about a, uh, a classical uh, uh, circumstance. You know, um, in, in this particular example, uh, there is a, a national health plan that's, that's looking for pretty aggressive rebates on a, on a, on a treatment, and the, the, uh, the um, brand success uh, being predicated on uh, gross-to-net margin doesn't allow for this 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 kind of level of discount. So we're looking to uh, do a bit better than this. But there is a hint uh, from the health plan perspective that 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 they may be open to the idea of in innovative contracting and and outcomes guarantees. Let's call it. Um, so on the table is a proposal to to look at uh, something. A little bit different than the classic, uh, and if on the previous slide we talked about a 25% uh, discount. Uh, in this particular case, we're looking at a base discount of 10%, with an adjustment following analysis of performance after the first two years, and that adjustment is proportional to, in this case, this is an on oncology example, proportional to the time to treatment discontinuation, uh, as a as a let's call it a proxy for progression-free survival. And if you uh, achieve the clinical trial performance, then there's no adjustment. If you exceed it, there are small credits. Um, and if you uh, do not meet it, uh, you, you have penalties. And notice the imbalance between the penalties and the, uh, and the credits. And that's, that is pretty typical uh, in, in what we've been seeing uh, of recent times. Um, so then the fundamental question is whether or not that's a good deal. Um, is that a is that a better uh, uh, option for the company uh, than the um, plain old straight discount? Um, and that comes down to you know what in fact will be your effective level of of discount after the performance adjustment over the next two years. So if you think about this um, this this uh, situation here, what we really want to know is. What are our chances of being in a three to five month uh, time to discontinuation versus our chances of maybe meeting the trial performance or even an upside? So, and this comes back to, to how we, we started off the, this section. And from our perspective, it is the fundamental question you need to ask when going into these agreements, not whether there's alignment on the outcome, not even, in fact, whether or not the outcome is, is uh, you know, conveniently measurable. What is important is how is the product going to perform in that real-world circumstance. So the first, the first uh, um, uh, step to, to, to being able to answer this uh, on a on an ongoing basis, on a on a and and with with as solid information as you you have from our perspective is making sure that you have an appropriate analytic platform, an appropriate modeling platform to to take the information that you know about the disease, to take the information that you know about the drug, and to bring that together. In a, in a way which enables you to, to understand when you're moving from the clinical trial into the real world, what in fact are your likely outcomes going to be. This is that so-called value translation uh, element that, that Ulrich talked about. And it's, it's important to have, not only from the perspective of, of supporting outcomes-based agreements, but just knowing um, what your product brings in terms of real-world value, in terms of, or at least being able to predict with the, the least amount of uncertainty what the product brings in terms of, of real-world value. And that will give 
people on both sides of the table the confidence to you know enter into the these agreements and and feel that that uh it's not just a uh a, a happening by random chance um, another thing that i would point out is that as i said earlier when we think about our drivers of effectiveness framework um i i mentioned the the idea that okay people often talk about patient populations and the and the characteristics of them and how the treatments may work differently in the different patient populations. But you have other actors in the system, and any integrated uh, modeling platform or approach to, to analyzing you know, your expected real-world performance needs to, needs to address these other actors in the system. How is the physician likely to behave in an environment where there are formularies and uh, and there are incentives to do one thing or another. Um, those may not always be uh, very straightforward. So it's not only about the patient themselves. It's about the environment in which they're uh, they're receiving their treatment. Um, so so in basically what 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 we're uh, trying to accomplish with these this integrated model is to make sure that we don't have to go back to the drawing board after we find that um, I don't know another treatment in the uh, in the uh, in the list of treatments for a particular indication has changed its tier status and we don't know how that's going to flow through the 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 treatment approach um, if we have this in an integrated model we can make that change quickly uh, of course it's based on our assumptions of the of how that will change the behavior but at least you have a framework in which you can you can understand that so what do we do with that information? Well, we, what we want to do is, in, coming back to this oncology example uh, and, the, and, the, and the, uh, the deal we're trying to evaluate um, in this, we, we need to understand what, in fact, is likely to be the time-to-treatment discontinuation and, and, as I mentioned, uh, as, a, as a proxy, essentially, for progression-free survival. Um, and and also, what is the variability around that, around that outcome? So when you look at what we know about the differences between the, uh, the RCT characteristics, you know, population characteristics um, or uh, prior treatment history and so on, and the real world, we see some, some key differences. In this example, we see a lot more patients on a particular first-line therapy. Um, and we also see uh, some differences in terms of the number of patients with poor prognosis. So when you flow this through your model, um, what, what is the impact of it going to be? Not only in terms of the sort of average progression-free survival or time-to-treatment discontinuation, but in terms of the distribution of that. So if we go into a, uh, a, an outcomes-based deal, um, and we don't know that we're likely to face, let's say, a broader variability and a shorter progression-free survival, then we probably are uh, overestimating the success of the deal from our perspective financially. So this is the, the essence uh, of, the, uh, of how we uh, propose to use the, the, uh, the modeling uh, framework to, to you know, make that translation from the RCT into the real world. So now, if I come back to the to the deal structure with the uh, with the um, data that I just showed you, um, I can look at specifically my probability of different levels of performance, and you know, what are my odds of meeting this no adjustment. Uh, uh, level, the RCT level, the five to seven months of, of time to discontinuation. What are my odds? What are my chances of, of being in that category? Um, according to this, this probability distribution, it looks like our uh, most likely scenario is a 15% penalty, which, as you can see on the bottom, brings us right back to where we started from, uh, in terms of the overall uh, gross to net, it was 25% was the original proposed deal, and 
um, the most likely outcome in this case is, in fact, uh, a 15% penalty. Now, of course, the weighted average net revenue on the left here on the bottom uh, is the sort of weighted average of all of these probabilities, but this is an aggregate level deal, so there's only one answer to this question. If your average is in the three to five month range, then the value of this, uh, this uh, arrangement is 23719000 and change. Um, whereas, you know, we went into this uh, hoping that we would improve upon our, our gross to net performance. So how can we use the, the uh, modeling to, to help us? Well, now that we know our distribution of, of, uh, of progression-free survival durations or time to discontinuation durations uh, from the, the previous uh, graph, we can look at other options. So, you know, one option as opposed to the, this aggregate level uh, approach that, that uh, was proposed, uh, one option that's often uh, implemented in, in the performance agreement space in oncology is these patient level uh, performance criteria. And the, the simplest approach is, is often, let's say, a minimum uh, progression-free survival or time to discontinuation and otherwise uh, times less than that, durations less than that would be fully refunded. Um, and in this particular case, we're able to just simply apply the probabilities we have from the, from the, the projection in the real world and make an estimate of what the, the net rebate uh, is. And in this case, 10.4% is, the, is the, uh, the net rebate that you could you could predict. Now, you can also put uh, error margins around that and, and know what the up and down are, but just for simplicity's sake, we, don't, we didn't present those. Um, there's also um, been some uh, more complex arrangements, so it's another type of uh, uh, agreement structure that could be evaluated, and um, uh, this, is, this is, uh, reflects one, one uh, uh, arrangement that has in fact been executed in the in the U.S. market uh, and was being used in our case as a sort of uh, an, an idea to to look at and see if this would be better. And in this particular case, it was it's more of a sliding scale uh, uh, rebate depending upon the actual time to treatment discontinuation. And and the way that that works is again you still apply these same real world probabilities. Uh, to each of the different durations of time to discontinuation, but each uh, achievement level of for each individual patient comes with a different uh, a different rebate. So if you achieve six months or more, the rebate level is zero percent. If you achieve five months, uh, it's it's an eight percent rebate, and and so on and so on. And it's more of a continuous uh, uh, rebate structure. Um, Furthermore, we can we can leverage our our you know our model uh, let's say ease of use because you know we can quickly change certain assumptions um, and we can leverage that to look at potential other options. Perhaps you may want to only consider a, a, a uh, an arrangement on a, on a subpopulation. So maybe we keep the complex structure we just talked about where there's a sliding scale rebate, but you and the payer agree that we're, you know, we're only going to uh, be, be um, applying this, this arrangement for patients who meet certain criteria. Now, it, of course, is going to be a smaller population, so it may get access to a smaller population within the health plan, but your gross to net and your rebate level um, comes down quite a bit. So it may be uh, advantageous to present a success story and have you know longer uh, real world uh, um, um, time to treatment discontinuation in a in a more targeted patient population and that may be in fact one of the one of the options that the the, the company decides to go with so you know we armed with this information uh, we put the the different uh, um, possibilities side by side and are able to, to assess whether or not 
um, we should spend the energy entering into either uh, the first uh, deal that's proposed, which is this, this suggested uh, deal, or one of these other options, or whether one of these other options ought to be proposed as an alternative. Um, you can also very simply evaluate more traditional, uh, let's call them utilization-based uh, uh, based deal structures, and and you know this is pretty commonplace to look at something such as a treatment duration cap or even offering the first month free and you know put each of these side by side and understand what does it mean from the standpoint of of gross to net and whether or not you know any one of these uh has less or more uncertainty around them i think the the, the last point on this that i would like to point out and and i you know the 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 uh, it, it's, it's something that we've, uh, we've seen all too often, is that in the absence of a, an adequate modeling framework to explore some of these, uh, these real-world circumstances and the impact, you know, or the, let's call it the translation of, of value or performance from the RCT to the real world, a lot of our customers rely directly on the clinical trial performance. And in every one of these circumstances, in this particular situation, you have a rather significant difference between what was predicted if they had based their analyses on the RCT performance versus what was predicted using the, the real-world uh, prediction model. And you know, I would say the only one of these circumstances where the gross-to-net discount was a little bit better um, under the uh, RCT performance is this one where there's a treatment duration cap, and that's logical because in the example we showed, the patients in the clinical trial had longer time to discon treatment discontinuation. So if there's a treatment cap, you're more likely to uh, be giving back um, uh, a, a larger percentage. However, the, the deal still winds up uh, being four million, worth $4 million less in terms of net revenues uh, than uh, had it been in the real world, uh, in, in a, an RCT environment. So it's very important to you know, not just rely solely on the RCT performance. It's, it's, it's critical to make that translation, try to understand how drivers of effectiveness may be present in the real-world environment, and translate that trial performance based on the information you know into, into uh, the real world. And I'll, I'll close um, this section with just some, uh, some thoughts, uh, two main points, really. Um, one is I want to separate between the idea of variability, which is a natural phenomenon which, which can be measured um, and might be impacted by things like, uh, um, you know, the, the natural variation of, of an individual, and uncertainty, which is our lack of understanding about the actual uh, parameters uh, and the and the, the what's driving the results. So the the drivers of effectiveness framework and our our modeling concept is not intended to eliminate variability. There is always going to be uh, some level of variability, but it's intended to reduce the uncertainty and mitigate the risk and make sure that we know what our boundaries of of variability and uncertainty are, and not just go in blindly, you know, hoping that we're going to achieve what we did in the real world. Um, and then the second point that I'm going to make here, uh, and Ulrich made it uh, earlier, is that, again, fundamental question before all other questions, before dedicating tons of resources into, uh, into exploring an outcomes-based agreement, is how does the product uh, uh, fare in the real world? How is it likely to fare? And, and will the value that you've observed in your clinical trial program really translate into the, into the real world environment? Um, because if, if, if not, then maybe it's not worth dedicating those kinds of resources to go into a complex negotiation and, and all of that. 
So um, with that, I will uh, turn it back. Thank you, Roman. And um, I'm going to take it off here to, to round us off over the last few minutes here. Um, really maybe connect a little of what we heard uh, in terms of the driver driving factors for OBA design, where we talked about the model approach, and leave you with um, a little bit of guidance um, as, to, as to perhaps to how to pull it off or go about the whole thing. So we distilled our experience here into a six-stage process. And let me be very clear, this really isn't a checklist. Uh, you know, it's, it's nothing that you could just check off. Uh, but these are six areas that, that each deserve uh, considerable, uh, you know, um, a thought. And um, what we're going to do is we're going to be publishing a detailed white paper on this exact process um, in, I think, about two weeks from now. Um, and, you know, drop me an email and, and we can send that to you. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about these steps. But, you know, in, if you're interested in going down this route, this is kind of what, what you should be thinking of. Um, so let me just, you know, walk you through, through some of these points. Here. So first of all, this is number one. Um, the first decision, as we've you know emphasized today, um, is to be made in the design of the OBA, and that's around the outcome you choose, which performance and payments will be indexed against. Um, and you can quantify how relevant uh, your primary endpoint and the clinical trial is when it you know comes to the payer and when it comes to their concerns. Um, you know uh, the outcome should be specific; it should be reasonable um, and simple to measure. Second is that you should always then predict the outcome in the given population um, because, you know, as we've learned, real-world effectiveness is quite different from RCT uh, uh, efficacy. So you need to be aware of the source and of the magnitude of these differences in the drivers of effectiveness, as we call them. Uh, number three here is that, uh, as Roman has shown, only then you do adapt the agreement and payment structures. And, and since we're talking, um, you know, about some form of risk sharing, the question really is what are your risks and how can you manage them and adjust them? Um, so all of your efforts are worth it from a gross to net point of view. Uh, fourth uh, uh, sort of uh, point here, a category is the, uh, the data analysis and measurements. Not something that we talked about today uh, much, but you need to set up a clear analysis plan for the assessment and the data collection. And I found, uh, in fact, Lee mentioned that we're part of uh, Satara, and obviously one of the areas we're heavily invested in is decision analytics um, that are ready for strategic decision making, which you know obviously includes real-time data dashboards, um, you know that sit on powerful platforms that give you some of that that ins insight as it comes in. Um, and then you know number five is is, is sort of the question of simplicity and, and specificity. Um, so what we say here, simplicity is balanced with that. So uh, you know um, when it gets to the sort of stage you really want to have, uh, you know, resolved all the issues that might arise. You want to maybe have, uh, you know, a steering committee, um, you know, and, and all of that sort of governed, but you want to be specific about what you're doing um, and what you're measuring. And, and lastly, then, um, you know, an area we, we touched upon uh, lightly today, uh, and that's, that's what we've seen in practice is, is that a lot of these, these deals do include so-called beyond-the-pill interventions, um, and that help maximize the outcomes. So in classic example here, um, is the Aetna agreement uh, with Merck and diabetes, where you know there is a disease management program that reinforces adherence uh, in uh, in commercial lives. So looking at this, this is definitely a journey, and frankly, many of these questions are asked of your team at the same time. So. You know, we put some of those here, and I'd get in trouble with our internal decision analytics team if I didn't share this with you. Um, and, and, and what I mean is, yes, you can address these questions one by one, and, you know, often that's what you have to do. Uh, but you should also feed them into what we call an enterprise or franchise approach. Um, and, you know, without going to the specific here for each of those points, what we mean is that, you know, um, your approach should be somewhat driven by a lot of data-gathering experience, and it should be powered somewhere in the backdrop by an analytics platform um, that you know helps you give you fast, reliable predictions on any number of key questions that may arise, um, rather than just maybe some you know qualitative uh, strategy insights. Um, and all above that is the question of how will we perform with all of these sort of questions in play in the reality, and that's really what what's at the heart of it. Um, and you know it's. Just take it not just from us saying that. Um, we've, if you look, this is a press clip recently. Um, you know, f I'd say that for clients with whom we've worked to accelerate their OBA journey, um, it really was the prediction of performance element that, that has become the new frontier um, because.
because it informs, as I said, the negotiation of the agreements. Uh, essentially, every move is is part and grounded in the analytics and modeling of of, of what real world effectiveness is going to look like. And in a way, it differentiates also your OB approach, um, you know, from whatever other manufacturers might be doing in this. Uh, uh, and you know, and some are pioneering OBAs. Um, and we've noticed that if you are on the forefront of these agreements, uh, you know, as is noted here in a, in a news clip, um, you really do need that kind of prediction engine behind it. Um, and so, you know, you can do that internally. You can build something, uh, you know, uh, within a certain disease area. Um, what we've done at our end here for our companies, we've decided to feed our knowledge into what, you know, drives performance in the real world into an analytics engine, which, call, which we call HOPE, which stands for the Health Outcomes Prediction Estimator. Um, and, you know, what you see here in the background is a short animation. Um, really what it, it's built around is about 10, well, 15 years of developing really complex modeling frameworks, um, you know, based on advanced uh, mathematics, based on, on simulation, um, Bayesian statistics. And what it does is it synthesizes the exposure, the effectiveness drivers, and the outcomes um, but from clinical trial and observational data resource, uh, data sources into simulations that help you predict your real-world impact. Um, and you may have seen it, you know, it looks nice on your dashboard, but, you know, it gives us a bunch of data points. But the question I often get asked, you know, when it comes to a consultancy like ours, well, how does that relate to sort of a strategic consultancy engagement, right? Isn't U.S. contracting all about uh, negotiation, all about strategy. And, and for us, we'd say hope is at the heart of an integrated approach. So um, I, I mentioned that earlier. Why? Because it allows us to test really high complex scenarios to optimize uh, an OBA design in the plan's exact population. Um, so, so it matters. It helps you know, to understand what's the right outcome, what's the right time horizon, and tweak that um, based on that insight. Uh, you know, it offers solid basis on, uh, uh, on the payer negotiation, the contracting, of course, outcomes uh, selection, uh, and, you know, reliable projections. And, and once you add the financial modeling, it just gives really the gross to net payment terms. And lastly, it also allows you to select the most uh, appropriate measures uh, for the OBA to be out there, suggest that to the payer. And once you do that, you have actual KPIs later on that you can measure whether or not an agreement was even successful um, or whether it is underperformed. And that's something, you know, you really want to be doing because uh, if you're the one, say, you spearhead uh, or are accountable for, for an innovative contracting approach within your company, um, you know, it has to go beyond one-offs. And, and you want to have really quantitative answers as to what the success of that agreement was. And if you do it uh, with such an engine, you really do have those insights uh, at your fingertips. And um, that's sort of our spin on it. Lee? Great. Thank you, Ulrich. And uh, I noticed that uh, looking at the time, we've reached the end of today's um, webcast. And in terms of uh, continuing the conversation, there's a bunch of next steps that I can recommend. Um, if you're intrigued by HOPE that Ulrich uh, just showed you, you can uh, request a one-on-one -on -one demo or presentation to you and your team. Um, just shoot us an email. And lastly, we have just initiated um, a roadshow um, looking at some of these topics in more detail with our clients. Um, if you would like to have a presentation um, or a lunch and learn with members of your um, team, you can also send us an email and we would be happy to schedule that. So thank you again very much for your time and we hope to be in touch uh, with future presentations.